Hey everyone, John here. This is part two of our episode, Pitting Lake Mungo Against Below. In this one, we delve deep into Below and decide which movie moves on. Hope you enjoy. Well, it's on to the underdog in tonight's matchup, David Twoey's Below. And doubling back to this Harry Knowles review from uh, 2002, I want to read something which I think is very pertinent to our tournament. The movie scares, creeps, and chills. It messes with your mind, your perceptions, and your nerves. Whether or not this is a haunted house movie or just the worst set of screwed-up circumstances ever will be up to you. But frankly, I like to think of this as a haunted house movie. As such, it is one of the very best, because the one problem with haunted house movies is why they don't just leave the house. Here, outside the ship is as scary, if not worse. They're being hunted by the Nazis, or throwing every single anti-sub tactic in the book at them. Several that fans of historical sub and anti-sub warfare movies will just get giddy and do butt bounces in their seat. <laughs> I was like, am I going to really read this? And I'm like, yeah, I'm going to go for it. So I probably should have stopped uh, earlier, but uh, there it is. Harry Knowles talking about uh, this movie. And yeah, he, he definitely called it a haunted house movie at the time. Look, nobody's saying that it doesn't belong to be in our tournament. Let's uh, let's hand it off to Rich here. I know Vic has lots to say about Below, right. but I I do want to say just one thing before uh, before we get into this. I do think it's it's relevant to our conversation. Oh yeah, that is relevant. Yeah. All right, all right, Vic, enlighten us. What did you just <laughs> open? <laughs> right, that is a Founders Backwoods Bastard. Ale aged in bourbon barrels. Ooh, that is a bold beer for eleven o'clock at night. Uh huh. I'm working from home, Rich. That's what that's what I'm doing this pandemic. It's a beautiful thing. That's a beautiful thing. And uh, Rich, how many frescoes in are you in at, at this point? <laughs> <laughs> uh, several so far at night, but I'm gonna I'll turn things around. I'll go to uh, a good the, the old the old standard, the Bows Point Sculpin of my household. It's the Pizza Port Swami's IPA. Oh yes, it's a mango Lacroix, Rich. You're lucky this is a this is an audio medium. <laughs> 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 no, I mean Rich has definitely been a stalwart champion of the Pizza Port, so uh, I believe him. I believe him. <laughs> and I've taken a break from the Sculpin uh, this week. I've been drinking the Stone uh, Scorpion Bowl IPA, which the first time I had was at Everybody Get Ready Hollow Weekend a few Woo! a few years ago. Uh, I think we actually went and got it from the Stone Brewery in like a, a growler. That was the first time I'd had it. Now it's available in bottles. And I also have on deck – now this is – I'm getting real pretentious, guys, but bear with me. Um, I have the Kirkland brand craft brewed session IPA. Let me, <laughs> let, me, let me know how those are because I've been tempted by that. My my Costco stopped selling good beer, and it drives me fucking bonkers. Mm. 
So if those are any good, let me know because I, I may be willing to in, invest in that. Well, I just took a sip and, you know, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a session IPA. That's all I can say. Well, uh, good then. But to, to keep things interesting, I'm actually – I have three drinks on the table in front of me and the other is the Casamigos – Mezcal, which unfortunately I spilled on the way from the kitchen back to the table, but I still have most of it. That is sad. Well, salute to you, gentlemen. <laughs> All right, now we're now we're ready to talk about a bunch of sweaty guys in a summary. Yeah, you, you do make me feel like I should go get a shot of bourbon, but let's not. I don't yeah. want. I don't want to peak too early. Let's at least get to food for thought. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I'm not sure how long historical significance yeah. will will take us. I think, Rich, I think we've arrived at thought. <laughs> well, I'll kick this one off, I guess. Uh, I don't have to tell you that this movie is not beloved by audiences or critics, for the most part. It may be damning it with faint praise to point out that this is definitely the best World War II haunted sub movie ever made. Because it's not a well that filmmakers go back to very often. Originality is definitely a plus here. I think Below has its own niche in horror history. It's not just another footnote in a very crowded subgenre. Another competent curiosity piece among many others. For example, slasher movies. How much competition is there in that closet? No, Below stands alone, and that's admirable. Quite like Lake Mungo, in fact. This movie resides far closer to the dustbin of history than the Hall of Fame, and it does probably deserve better. But that's kind of where it is. <laughs> I felt like Sorry. a really depressing eulogy. <laughs> yeah, Jesus. Uh... The the historical significance that I was drawn to, and John, you alluded to it in the fact that there are not many haunted submarine tales sort of floating around out there, is that it does remind me of a, a Lovecraft, H.P. Lovecraft short story called The Temple that is about a guy in a submarine, uh, the this they get hit by enemy fire, they sink – he remind, basically winds up the only person alive, and there is a temple sunken on the bottom of the ocean nearby that begins to light up, and he begins to see movement in there, and uh, eventually horrific things and madness ensue. I wonder this if is, that like inspired the movie of uh, Stuart Gordon's Dagon at all, because like it's that's a very that that, that strikes me as one of the visuals that we might have seen to a degree in the late great uh, Stuart Gordon's film. But uh, that's, I, I mean, it, look, it certainly might have gotten as Stuart Gordon knew his Lovecraft backwards and forwards, but it's, it, it, it is the idea of the submarine as a really a recent addition to the, the possible settings for horror Lovecraft latched onto it immediately. And, not a lot of other people did, and so I think that that Tui found his way to it. Uh, apparently, Aronofsky was was attached to direct this, 
initially, and he jumped off of it to do Requiem for a Dream, and so then Tui stepped in. He was now, wait, uh, didn't Aronofsky write at least one draft of, of the script? Am I yes. Wrong? Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, so initially this was going to be Aronofsky's second film after Pi, and he jumped off to do Wrecking for a Dream, and then David Toohey came in to direct. It's, I mean, look, in terms of historical significance, like Lake Mungo, yeah, it's, there's, there's not, there's just not a lot to point to. I would, I mean, I would argue that Toohey is, in the overall scheme of things, uh, uh, more a figure of consequence in film and genre filmmaking specifically. Uh, I, as I've said, I'm quite the fan of pitch black specifically. The arrival is better than it has any, uh, the any Charlie like, Sheen the, movie. Yeah. The, yes. The Charlie Sheen one, but it's sort of, I mean, again, he does sort of clever genre spins. This is somebody who likes the genre, who likes playing with it, who likes tinkering with it. And to me, when I look at his at his filmography, this is the highlight. And that's, you know, for for somebody who is sort of a, a substantial figure, not a not a towering figure, not a, a not a, a, a carpenter or a Wes Craven or anything like that. But you're talking about a guy who wrote wrote the screenplay for The Fugitive, again, The Arrival, Pitch Black, um, a couple other sort of. Not imposter, not my favorite sci-fi. But if you were going to tell me you were going to tackle a Philip K. Dick story and you wanted someone to adapt it, this guy would be high on my list of people that I want looking into that kind of world. What's so, better, uh, Denis Villeneuve's uh, Arrival or David Toy's The Arrival? <laughs> oh, yeah, the one that was nominated for Best Picture, John. That's the, yeah, that's the answer. yeah. Although I do need, I do need to rewatch the Charlie Sheen one because I haven't seen that in a long time, and I remember enjoying it. But that's that's not the kind of movie that that Tui makes. You know what I mean? He's not he's not striving for the 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 strong intellectualism. He's he's not going to leave you with lingering questions about humanity's place in the universe. He's telling tight, contained stories, and so it's not going to have a bombshell impact on the genre. But I think that's one of the weaknesses of this movie. I think that's one of your weaknesses, John. (laughs) No, sorry. I mean, just like when we're trying to answer or, or, you know, like fulfill the requirements of these categories, like I think a little more of that would have, would have been welcome. You are not wrong, John. I would, I would actually agree with that. But the flip side of that is, that it has extraordinary visuals. It yeah. has a very tight, well-told story and really rings tension out of both of its military sort of war film story, which is to me, the category that it really belongs in is not the, the haunted submarine sub, sub, sub genre pun intended, uh, <laughs> uh, but just the military Horror genre, where I think it it lands alongside things like even Aliens and Our Point, and uh, you know a few a few other examples. Of well, I think that. we've so, already determined it's better than Our Point uh, because we eliminated Our Point. But yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that that this movie 
one of the things I was going to say later, but I'll just say now because you're, you're bringing it up, is that if I was going to recommend this movie to someone that wanted to watch a really cool World War II submarine movie, I'd be like, oh, and by the way, it's also a haunted house. Like, it's also a ghost movie. That would yeah. be sort of the way I would frame it. It's like a really good interpretation of the tension and the drama and the jeopardy and the, and the stakes of being on a sub. And, and then kind of, by the way, there's also this other storyline going. Yeah. What, what if U five, seven, one, but ghost just by virtue of that being the parameters within, within which the story is told, historical significance is not going to be, what what this movie's known for, although I do think it's hurt by the release. It's hurt by the fact that if this had made a hundred million dollars, we might be talking about it in a different way. Instead, we're talking about it as a as a hidden gem, and it's I don't know, somehow that's different with the pedigree that it has compared to something like like Mungo. This is per- this is perceived as a failure. That you have to find, whereas I think Lake Mungo is perceived as a hidden gem, an indie movie that you've maybe never heard of. Well, yeah, like well, a failure is a movie yeah. that you have to reevaluate. You're like, okay, we judged this movie, we hated it, were we right or wrong? Well, it's funny, how, how much of that does just stems from like budget alone? Like this is a film that was that was ostensibly created with the idea that it would launch and make a ton of money like you don't invest i think it was 40 million dollars into this movie mm-hmm. um i mean they built an entire like above ground sub to shoot it within so it's like this was no small potatoes like they wanted this thing to to go big and then it went absolutely nowhere so this was in the classic hollywood sense a bomb but do you guys like i want to ask both of you do you think if this movie had been properly marketed is intimately familiar with the movie as we are do we really think, any of us, that like this would have been a quote-unquote hit? I, I'm not. I, I don't want to like uh, prejudice the question. I honestly like tell me. No, I, I really don't. I think this would definitely be a, a middle of the road. Like more people have seen it. You know. Oh yeah, I like I caught that on on USA at one point. Do people still watch USA? Is that a thing? Sure. You know, it's like a it's a movie that you would have caught at some point or another but definitely not a favorite of of many fans i mean it's it's not a favorite in my household um <laughs> my, my poor wife who's who's watched it i think like three times in the past two years but sure people would be definitely be more familiar with it as opposed to now where it's like no one's even ever heard of it it's very hard to it's hard to find Vic, make the case for why if this movie had been properly marketed it would have been a big hit my knee-jerk reaction is this is one of those like forty to sixty million dollar grocers, right? Like it's a it's a programmer. It's in the in terms of the way studios would would approach it, but it's an exceptionally well-made programmer, and they didn't blow all their money on Michael Douglas to play Captain Bryce. You know, so they so they they didn't have to they didn't have to do that, and I don't know what the sort of worldwide thing would have been. It's one of those it's it's one of those things where 
the bulk of your appeal for a World War II submarine movie is going to be men and probably older men. It's a one-quadrant movie, right? Mm-hmm. And so the question is, does the haunted house element bring in a second quadrant? Horror films typically appeal to women, by and large, but at the very least to young people. So are you going to get more younger men into it, or are you going to turn off the older audience who's coming for the, the World War II submarine aspect of it? I don't know how that I don't know how that plays out at the box office. But if if it was gauged entirely on how the the if it was gauged entirely on the quality of the film, then yeah, I, I think this would make sixty million dollars. I mean, I would and say you, there's the blonde guy who is a definitely a good looking guy, but like there's nothing in this movie that seems to be like red meat for the fourteen year old girls. In no, yeah, there isn't, and that's and and that is uh, again that's the that's the flaw in it from a a marketing perspective. No, and but no, so, it's not yeah. the marketing; it's the actual film. Well, no, but what I mean is, how do you market a, a a haunted house movie that doesn't appeal to young girls? It's a haunted house movie that's directed almost squarely at over twenty five year old men. Yeah, I mean, that's, I think that's sort of a that's sort of a tough sell. What we're hitting on is that it, it wasn't that this movie would have resonated with a large mainstream audience. Am I wrong? I think that because it's exceptionally well made, uh, you know, the reviews. When you look at the reviews, they didn't get a lot of reviews from top critics. If you if you done a, if it had a better ending which there's, there's just nothing we can do about there. But if you had done sort of a slower rollout and generated some positive buzz and then gone wide with it, done sort of a platform rollout, I really think you could have gotten to 60 million. But that's, I mean, again, that's, that's neither, that's, that's neither here nor there. But in, that, in, I mean, that implies some word of mouth and some enthusiasm yeah. and I, I'm not, I'm not sure like as much as I love to, hate the Weinsteins as we all do. I'm not sure this movie wasn't a quote unquote dog commercially, like right out of the the gate. I'm, I'm not really sure that this movie would have appealed to multiple quadrants. I just, I don't, I don't know that it would have because it's a very nerdy, specific, masculine, not traditionally entertaining in some ways in terms of romance or humor, you know, kind of a movie. That's, that's sort of my immediate take on it. I always love the backhanded insult, not traditionally blank. Yeah. <laughs> she's, she's not traditionally attractive. Yeah. <laughs> well, like, yeah, I mean, like the, the boys aren't going to be thinking there's, there's no boobs or butts or whatever. Like there's no, none of that. That is that what they're into? They want the boys. Well, teenage teenage boys are not going to be really drawn to this because there's none of there's none of that. There's not a lot of violence or you know action or things of that nature, and the girls aren't really going to be drawn to it either. Uh, It doesn't really push any of their traditional buttons. So it's like a it really is kind of a movie for middle aged or elderly people that. That dig World War II. <laughs> well, well, that's, that's true. Wait, wait, wait. 
U five seven one made one hundred twenty seven million domestic. Well, yeah, but that had Matthew McConaughey. That had a a pre whatever Matthew McConaughey was famous for Matthew McConaughey. Like that well, was that was that was early in his ascendancy, and I don't think he was. I mean, he was the selling point. But I'm just saying that there were there were people who would show up for that. If you're saying you had Matthew McConaughey in the Matthew Davis role, do you think this would have made a hundred million dollars? Probably would have done better. I mean, that would not have hurt. We know that. We definitely yeah. know that. <laughs> but this is I. Well, let me ask you this: just on a on a strict, strictly quality level, screenplay, acting, suspense, is this a better movie than U five seven one? I haven't seen that movie, to be honest. Yeah, I haven't seen it either. Well, you're both embarrassments to this podcast. <laughs> I have seen U five seven one, and it is a better movie. Well, but I don't know. No, 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 no. You guys are done. You guys are done. I get to talk for the rest of the podcast. <laughs> Better is such a qualitative judgment, Beck. It has nothing to do with actual box office. Uh, well, if 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 you had seen the movie, perhaps you would be able to have some. Input. No, I do think it's funny that we were comparing this to the. Um, the Widowmaker film, the Catherine Bigelow, Harrison Ford movie, because Vic and I were working at uh, Copelson in the same building as Intermedia, who made that movie, and I wrote an elevator with Harrison Ford at that uh, at that exact time. So Below was being produced and released to deafening silence, uh, you know, when Vic and I met. So it's a it's a wonderful thing. Well, I just think, look, even if you look at The Shining. Like the the box office performance, it's relevant in a discussion of a historical significance, but it is not the be all end all. Mm-hmm. But you also, much like Lake Mungo, you can't point to a, any sort of ripple effect of this film either. If this is a movie that's going to proceed in this contest, it's being done on on merit alone. It is not because you know scores of filmmakers looked back at this and went. Holy shit, that movie was awesome. I'm going to emulate that. This is not The Thing, which also underperformed at the box office, but has since emerged as you know one of the most influential horror films of the last 50 years. But that's like, a really good observation in the sense that like The Shining bombed, but we all know it's it's you know role sh- in history. But this movie the- and and Lake Mungo have not had that uh, rediscovery. John, The Shining did not bomb, and I, you're making me upset because I don't have any of the figures and stuff that I had up when we had this discussion last time. But no, The Shining actually grossed over in, – in adjusted dollars, The Shining grossed over $100 million. It was, I think it was about 150 It was the third highest grossing film that Kubrick made behind, I believe, Spartacus and 2001. Well, I, I appreciate the correction, and I'm not arguing with that. But then, it, then it, there's nothing else to say. It was considered. It. it was. It was. It was lightly regarded. That's that's that's, that's what we agree on. Yeah. yeah. It was for critical reception. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just gonna. I'm gonna backtrack. I'm gonna get away from the box office here, just to pull it back into historical significance for for a brief moment here. We didn't neglect to mention that that David Tui also is the writer of Critters Two, uh, Warlock. Waterworld, not to mention like the whole Pitch Black and Chronicles of Riddick franchise, 
he's gone on and done some uh, some certainly lesser uh, films in the genre, but he's definitely a genre lifer. Like this is not a guy who is just dabbling in yeah. it. He has certainly hopped around between sci-fi and fantasy and and horror. You know, he did like G.I. Jane with Ridley Scott, so it's like that's kind of like an, an outlier. But this is someone who's like always kind of been working on the fringes. He's not been making what you consider completely straightforward mainstream films, even though he's obviously seen a lot of success with, you know, stuff like you mentioned, like you were at The Fugitive, um, you know, but he is certainly someone who's who's working at, at, at trying to get to darker story matter. And so this is relatively early on in terms of his uh, directing career. I mean, after, like you said, the, the rival and uh, the rival in Pitch Black. And so I will say that in terms of a career, like this is a pretty interesting point in the, in the fact that like this is someone whose name is still somewhat relevant in, in and known in the industry. And this, this is probably his high watermark. You know, this is right before like the Chronicles of Riddick kind of went south and, and went over budget and underperformed. Well, yeah. I don't. I don't know that that's a compliment to the historical significance <laughs> of the movie. I mean, versus like, and then he went on to do, you know, and then he had Mike Flanagan's career, and then it would be like, oh well, yeah, this was a critical milestone early in his career. <laughs> well, yeah, but he but he started with Critters Two. Okay, which, I mean, which is which is an excellent film, by the way. Uh, no, oh I, wow, I'll take I, your word for that. Other than the fact that now I need to watch Critters Two again. Two is not an excellent film, but oh. it does have a special place in my heart. <laughs> but I guess what I mean, I mean, you're talking about someone who came from like pretty schlocky beginnings and managed to claw his way up to a forty million dollar film and would go on to do a much bigger film with with Chronicles of Riddick. So, like, if you're just talking about the, the ascendancy of a of a talent in the in the field and someone reaching what, as Vic put it, is kind of like the high water marker of their career. It's worth assessing that film like within that microcosm as well, not just its own like critical success. Well, high watermark is a great pun for a movie about the ocean, but I I will say that I think that Pitch Black is much better than this movie. Uh, Vic, how do you feel about that statement? Pitch Black, I think is, and you guys are going to think I'm crazy, but I I stand behind this. Pitch Black, I think, is a little more thematically complex than this film. But, why would I? Why uh, would I think that's crazy? I don't know. People don't think of thematically thematically complex when they think of Pitch Black. I, you're right, John. I'm sorry. Compared I, to right. this movie, <laughs> I like this movie more. I mean, I love I love both of these movies. Like it is. Okay. If you put sure. Pitch Black and Below together between them, I probably watched the the two of them fifty times. But I just want to say that 90% of people would probably say that Pitch Black made a bigger impression on the world than this movie. I think that, that's, that's fair. But but that that stems almost exclusively from Vin Diesel. Yeah, but I mean if, it's also the Matthew, character. If, no, if Matthew Davis had gone on to do uh, uh, The Fast and the Furious sure. instead of Paul Walker – but you know. but Pitch Black is a synthesis of actor and character and script and world. Yeah. Look, I mean, I'm get, wait, wait, wait. I, I want to. St- I want. I just want to take a step back. 
I can't def- – there, there is no historical significance for Below. It is not a relevant film in terms of its impact on other films, in terms of David Toohey's impact on the genre. It's, it's a really good movie that exists in a, in a bubble. But it's not a significant film. I, I, can't, I can't defend that. And I, you know, I don't, I don't want to get backed into that corner of trying to say that it is. It's not. Well, you won't. But obviously, you know, Lake Mungo wasn't either. So yeah. we can kind of call that a wash. Let's, let's move on to Food for Thought. Uh, Vic, take us away here. Like, Wait, what? Quick, quick fun fact. Pitch Black was shot in Australia. There you go. It all ties together, oh, guys. Nice. Of course, of course it was. And Rada Mitchell would go on to starring Greg McLean's second film, Rogue, about a giant crocodile, which I also enjoy and feel is is underappreciated. I do appreciate that we spent a very long time coming to the conclusion that this movie just has no historical (laughs) significance. I mean, that's that's what's so sort of fascinating about this discussion and, and the way that this is played out. I know we talked about this with The Shining in the last one. But th- this does wind up being an interesting pairing. These are both films that made no impact at the box office, that are filmmakers of very little consequence in the overall scheme of things. Well, I mean, one could say right off the top that The Shining's historical uh, significance on a scale of 10 would be 10, and yeah. these two movies would be one or two. And like, well, though, put all the other merits aside, That I think that's a fair uh, judgment. Of course. No, no, my point was... And, you know, it was, was just that The Shining versus The Devil's Backbone pulled together a lot of interesting ideas and a lot of interesting juxtapositions. And I feel like that's what we're getting here. On the one hand, you have these films that did not perform well, that were not marketed well, that succeeded largely on, on word of mouth insofar as they succeeded. But stylistically, they're polar opposites. I mean, the the below is a film that lives and dies uh, largely on its lighting and its suspense sequences and the performances, which I think are terrific. And you know, they're they're sort of individual bits that you go, wow, like they really hit that out of the park. Whereas Lake Mungo succeeds on subtlety. There's there's not you know, it's it's not a, a there's not a lot of stylistic flourishes in directing. Uh, they're they're very much opposites in terms of their approach to telling a horror story, but somehow their outcomes in the world became very similar, and now they find themselves among the eight best haunted house films ever made, according to our our little podcast here. And I think that's pretty that's pretty substantial. But yeah. those juxtapositions, I think, are relevant. It is when cool it comes- and it is very strange at the same time, as you pointed yeah. out, because these movies could not be more different uh, stylistically. The historical significance for both of the films is essentially nil. But, you know, the food for thought, I think there's there's much to be said about both of these. And obviously we had a long discussion about Lake Mungo in, this, in that respect. Below's going to suffer a little more in that. It is. It does not have the the depth of thematic content. I think that that like Mungo does. But I had an interesting thought as I was going through it that I just wanted to throw out there, and I, I made a couple of notes. But the the main one is that what we really hit on in the last the last podcast 
was that the villain, the the main antagonist, really should have been Loomis. It should have been Holt, Holt McCallany's character, right? That if you had if you had swapped Bryce's death for Holt McCallany's, and it had been it had been him on the bow of the ship at the end, it still mm-hmm. would have been perfect. It still would have been ideal, but it would have been a, a hell of a lot better. And the reason yeah. is this. Loomis is Iago. He's the one whispering to Bryce, hey, this is what you need to do. This, right. is, this is what they're thinking. This is the thing. And it was the failure of Tui to recognize that his character was really the bad guy, the one behind the scenes uh, pulling the strings is what hurts the film the most. But that's something that I think has needled me as many times as I've watched it. That's the thing in the food for thought that I've looked at and gone, there's something wrong here and I can't quite put my finger on it. And as soon as we, we had that discussion, that's bubbled up more and more. And I've been like, shit, that's it. Yeah. I mean, I think that the Holt McCallaghan character is like, not just because of what his career has, where it's gone from here, but like, yeah, he is the most interesting character in this movie. There's no doubt about that. And I think that he does kind of get short shrift. And while Greenwood is fantastic, Bruce Greenwood in his performance, yeah, just kind of like boiling it down to, to him might be, might be a misstep, even though like it's definitely the high point of the film, as I've said several times, as we've you know, gone through this process, the way that, uh, that Loomis dies is, is great, but you might be onto something there, Vic, because he, he really is the more, the, there's more fertile ground with that character. And we could have, we could have, uh, delved deeper into it and possibly brought more resonance into an ending that, as I said last time, I don't know what they should have done differently. I mean, if we're just talking about like, how do you dispense of the, of the main antagonist? Is it a hero or the ghost or himself who dusts himself off? Like they didn't have a lot of obvious options that they just neglected and went with this, this sort of weak ending. I think they would have needed to re-engineer this several steps earlier in the entire plot to come to a, a better ending. And you might be on the right track as to what would have led us there. It should have been Shakespearean. This should have been the story of someone's ambition driving them to ruin and the ghost that comes to drive them to it. It could have been Macbeth, you know? Mm -hmm. Uh, It it just needed, it needed a little bit more. So it's in terms of food for thought, I think the seeds of all that stuff are there. And that's part of what pulls me back to this movie over and over again. But it's not fleshed out. They didn't quite get there. Maybe if Aronofsky had directed. I would just say, like, I want to throw this over to Rich at this point. But I would say that Aronofsky's Requiem for a Dream blew me the fuck away. And, like, as I imagine him directing this movie, I can't help but think I would have liked it better when Aronofsky was at the 
height of his powers and just a, a darker, more visceral and hallucinatory version of this movie. Not that this movie isn't dark or hallucinatory, but I, I just, I have to wonder what I've actually liked it a lot more. My instinct is yes. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you. I, there's something that's a, a little like, in terms of feel, it's a, it's a tiny bit like glossy and conventional. Yeah. Whereas like Aronofsky is, especially as you point out at that point, his career was so surreal and so heightened and uh, felt unsafe uh, in terms of how he guides you through his, through his world. So I do feel like the film would have benefited that from, from that a little bit, especially because I mean, the strength of this movie, when it comes to like the, the things that you want to, to go back and think about are the mysteries it leaves as to whether or not, you know, the, the, the crew members on board the sub are, experiencing something that is that is truly paranormal is it something that's out to get them or are they just suffering from claustrophobia and anxiety from the the subs above them or the stir crazy you know feeling of being trapped in the submarine and and they're just you know projecting these ideas on each other like you know there's a lot more mystery and nuance and i mean Talk about a movie that that plays with with paranoia and and subversion of thought. I mean, like Requiem for a Dream is is about as far as you can push some of those ideas. So to see it brought to something that's a little bit of like a pop boiler, like this movie is, I think would have been really interesting. And no, nothing to take away from David Tui's directing. I actually think it's directed quite well, and yeah, I appreciate yeah. the fact that he, you know, I I read a bit about how he tried to to bring a, a noir style to this. And I think that he did that with, with some mixed success, but I think that there's a lot of compelling, uh, camera work that that's done here. And, and he brings a lot of style and, and panache to it that that's interesting. But I do think that, that Darinowski could have taken it to a more cerebral level where you're less certain of what's going on. And I, and I, I know this isn't really, like this isn't really the place to unpack like the the what could have beens of this film, but I do think it highlights in some of the weaknesses here. Where as I think about you know the, the food for thought category, I I like this movie a lot. I don't know that there's a lot that I'm really going back and and pondering about it. I definitely felt like this last viewing I had that it was a case where I was like, oh, I, I feel like I like I pretty much get it. Yeah, I mean, I want to give Vic the last word on this, but what are we debating here with Food for Thought? All is revealed by the end of the movie, isn't it? I mean, there's no larger mythology that we're theorizing about or getting clues or hints, you know, to ponder. The commander dies a bad death, and he wreaks bloody revenge on everyone even remotely connected to the crime. But the mythology underlying that, the underpinning and allowing his participation in the story, is just basic ghost stuff. There's no cosmic or demonic implications. It's The causality is clear. The motives are fairly unambiguous. We understand everyone, and we kind of get why they make the choices that they do. Personally, I don't spend a lot of time wondering about the backstory that we didn't see or what happens after the final credits. I think this movie is 
you know, it's just, it, it's a, it's, it's little story and you totally, you, you get it. That's, that's my interpretation. Vic, tell me why I'm such a fucking moron. John, I can't, I mean, you're, you're right. And it's rich. I think you hit the right word is, is panache because I think where this film succeeds is in rewatchability because yeah. what I, what I get from it when I, when I, when I've watched it over and over again is a deeper appreciation for how great this shot is, how, how magnificent the, the cuts are and the audio design when that last depth charge is bouncing along the hull of the ship. Like it's, there are so many little touches that take what is this otherwise very sort of contained story and, and elevate it. I mean, that's what it is. It's a, you're right. It's a pot boiler that is elevated by the execution. And the execution is what makes it rewatchable, and the and the performances. I mean, that goes into the execution, obviously. But I, I I've grown enamored with almost every actor on that ship as I've watched this movie over and over again, and just gone, God, every face, the delivery, the of the lines. It's 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 really just a well executed film. But this podcast, the process of, of looking at it in this kind of depth really has uh, exposed to me that idea. Like I said, this could be a Shakespearean story. This could be something like Macbeth about somebody who wanted the command so badly and was talked into it by this Iago character but was too weak to actually handle the mantle which is what you get in that wonderful scene when they're being attacked and Loomis yeah. winds up having to command the ship naked because Bryce just can't get his shit together to do it. Like those are the – that's a, the, the, all those seeds are in there. There's so much great stuff. You know what it is, Vic? You know what the what? problem is? Is that all of that is backstory in this movie. Like those characters and their dynamics and who they are – like the choice was made to make them backstory and supporting characters. Yeah. If the movie had committed to the idea that it was actually about those men, we would really have something. But but somewhere along the line, they decided, no, we're going to have like two or three other characters dealing with those guys. And that's what the movie is about. But if they had just like focused on how these guys got to this point and made the decisions that they did, instead of making a backstory, it could have been tremendously powerful. There's a lot of potential here, and it's and it's so obvious because the execution is so good that you look at it and go, God, if they if they had just twisted this knob this way, if they had just turned this mm-hmm. screw a quarter turn to the right, all of a sudden you really have a classic. And I don't think it has anything to do with the cultural impact of the the box office, but just looking at this story in a vacuum, it's very close to something brilliant. But it is it has to do with the style and it has to do with the execution. It's just also the emotional remove that we have from the nurse character and 
the the guy that we Matthew Davis. Yeah. Yes, yes. Like we're not really intimately associated with them. We're not really rooting for them or identifying with them. It's just this. There's so many weird layers in this film. Maybe, maybe Olivia Williams. I, I don't know. I mean, she's not, she's not a traditional protagonist in any, there's no traditional protagonist in this film. I think that's, that works to its detriment. You're not wrong in your point. I will say like, just circling back to, to what you were saying, Vic is in some ways, the decisions that these guys have made being backstory, I do think, ends up helping it in the long run if you're talking about the rewatchability of it. This is a movie that I think with each successive viewing I've had of it, I was able to at least unpack a, a different element of the of the story or or understand, you know, this time going, you know, watching the first act of the film again after you've seen it a couple times, you are able to watch it with new eyes uh, with regards to, you know, now that you know the backstory of of those characters, where they're coming from in the you know the the first half hour or so, so it's like I do think that there are ways in which that can be a benefit to the film. I think it makes it a rough first viewing for certain, and it has weaknesses throughout. But I still I don't think it's all bad. Is what I mean. Well, let me let me pitch this at you. What if we reimagine this movie as we are the Bryce character or the Loomis character is the protagonist, even if he's an anti-hero. And we see the other characters as antagonists, like that, that are, are, you know, getting in the way of our getting away with this crime. But we understand why the crime happened. We understand like from the beginning, what what led the decisions that were made to be made? I just think that that would like at least we would directly root the story in somebody's experience, and we would understand what motivates them instead of this kind of weird. We're always like at an arm's length from every character in this film. It doesn't have the benefit of saying this is our protagonist. This is our lead. You're going to, you're going to understand what they're trying to do and why, and you're going to care about that. And that's a huge disadvantage for any movie not to have that. Yeah. It is just Odell as a decent guy trying to uncover what's happening. And he's almost a peripheral character in in the whole scope of things. Yeah. No, you're not, you're not I've always felt that his character was sort of the weakest point. But it's just looking at it in the totality like historical significance I feel like is kind of a wash, right? Like between this and Lake Mungo. Neither of these have any have any substantial historical significance. Food for thought I think for sure goes to Lake Mungo. But rewatchability sort of lands on below. Like I watched yeah. this just to see, uh, the, I think the, the most recent time I watched it, I was really focused on the, the chief character. The actor's name is Nick Chinland, but like it was just one of those supporting performances. You look at it and go, this is fantastic. This guy's doing amazing work and, and really mm-hmm. filling in all of the, the, nooks and crannies of this story in a way that make it feel believable and make these characters feel 
believable and the world feels lived in. It has a it has a lot to recommend it, but it it is missing something sort of squarely in the middle that I think uh, Lake Mungo is not. I'll give it the edge here, Vic, in rewatchability myself. In the yeah. sense that the the ride slash journey or whatever you want to call it that this movie takes the viewer on is just it's more dynamic and varied and entertaining than Lake Mungo's. At this point, if I had to watch one of these two movies five times, I might choose Below because it's more of a feast for the senses. And we're coming back to you, directing and editing and cinematography and music and sound design and all of those things as a movie. But as I mentioned in the food for thought category, this movie, you know, it just doesn't have me puzzling over its mysteries. Um, it's not something I want to keep interact, interpreting and reinterpreting and speculating about. Because it doesn't have big payoffs and a deeply satisfying ending, I'm not sure I would really push it on anyone who hasn't seen it. Again, unless this person or people are there for the World War II sub-movie and, oh, by the way, it's also a haunted house movie. So that's the only negative with rewatchability versus Lake Mungo. But personally, I think I would rather rewatch this movie than Lake Mungo because it's 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 visceral, it's engaging, it's it, it's more of a ride. So I have to say that that's that's where I stand. I'd love to agree with you both on the rewatchability of this of this movie, but. There's just there are two key things that are missing: boobs and butts. <laughs> the boys want <laughs> there. Actually, Rich, I'm just going to point out: Holt McCallany does a whole scene naked. If you want butts, they're there. Shit, Vic, you got me. <laughs> Vote changed. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Because we'll see you in the next round below. Well, that's well, that's well. But again, what a fascinating position to be put in. Because look, I'm not going to lie. My my impulse where I think my vote is going to go is to Lake Mungo. But what a weird spot to be in. Where if you said which movie do you want to watch again, I would say below. But mm-hmm. which movie gets my which movie gets my vote? Which movie should advance in this tournament? I think it's like Mungo. Let me let me throw this out there. As much as I would probably rather watch Below again, as I just stated, I I feel that were we to watch like Mungo again. We would somehow, and, and we give it the loving autopsy the next round um, connotes. I think that we will have more insights and understanding into the haunted house genre and ghosts in general than we will with Below. And, and so even though in terms of pure entertainment experience, I give my edge to below. I'm even going to put the caveat on it in terms of rewatchability that I think that Lake Mungo has more importance or more 
mystery and intrigue and in, in where it really counts, which is what is a ghost? Why are they here? What do they want? Like, what is the cause and effect of ghosts? So I just, I feel like in some way it's a more important entry into the genre we're talking about than, than below. I just, I, I think I need to make that argument. Well, I think that the argument, the argument for below would be that almost sort of purely technical, like we've said, it would be the lighting and the shots and the, the score and the sound design and not the ideas and the the mysteries of it and 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 the parts of the human experience that it's kind of illuminating and i think that really is ultimately what drives a better movie by any by any definition well we're also kind of de- house or anything else we're sort of debating is it a better movie in a vacuum? And I don't even think we would, would really seriously argue that it's a better movie yeah. in a vacuum. But like even like the, the attributes of Below that are superior don't have anything to do with the haunted house genre. So, yeah, that's kind of what I'm saying. Well, and it just just to point this out in the context of our competition, that we're talking about a two-seed and a ten-seed and I think we're all agreeing that when you get to this level, when you get to the uh, the evil eight, we're really splitting hairs. Like we're really trying to define right. what is making one film better than the other, and it's not always a hundred percent clear. Like I think this has been a fascinating discussion. Just to try and parse out, okay, I like these things about this movie, and I like these things about this movie. And this is what the broader context is, and how does that inform that? Because we really have to take it to that level to make a decision about which one of these movies deserves to advance. And one of the things I haven't touched on at all, but I looked at my notes from our last show regarding Below, when we covered it the last time, is that I, I don't care about the ghost in Below. I don't like the commander. I don't find him interesting. I think he's almost just a device, a narrative device. He's not an interesting spirit in any way, shape or form. And I think that obviously the spirit in, in Lake Mungo is a, a critical, fascinating, complex, contradictory character. So that, that is a, is a factor in my thought process. For sure. Look, we're like I said, we're in the Evil Eight. Like we're talking about the thirty-two best haunted house films ever made. I'm gonna go ahead and and cast my vote for Lake Mungo. I love Below. This feels like the right place for it to arrive, and then we can sort of put it aside and move on. But I'm not. I, I think there's there's absolutely no shame for David Tui. And Darren Aronofsky and the cast and everyone involved to say we made this movie and this is how it stacks up against similarly themed and and constructed films. Right, a uh, top eight haunted house movie of all time. Yeah, Absolutely, that's yeah. pretty. That's that's pretty substantial, and I think this is an exceptional movie. 
but yeah, I think the the emotional depth, especially in Lake Mungo, sets it apart. It's a it's that 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 pushes it ahead uh, in this round. But there, it's a it's a closer call than than you would sort of think heading in. Rich, first of all, I don't think there's any shame that we can heap upon below that it hasn't already experienced <laughs> in its own lifespan. So. <laughs> Let's let's not go tooting our horns like too much. Um, I mean, look, you guys have, have said uh, a lot about both of them. I don't know that I have a whole lot to to add. For me, this was this was pretty much a no contest, uh, and I and again, I I really enjoy both of these films. I see a lot of attributes, and I appreciate the dichotomy that you guys have, have set up in terms of of what appeals to you for each but at the end of the day i will actually go further and say that i would still put my vote for rewatchability um in the category of like mungo if there's a movie that i want to go and not to say that i wouldn't i don't want to watch uh below again i i certainly do and, and would gladly but when i think about the movie that i'm excited to watch again even at this stage where i've seen these probably an equal number of times it sets up a pretty even playing field. And without hesitation, I tell you, I'm much more interested in settling down and turning off the lights and delving into the mysteries of Lake Mungo more yeah. so than being taken along the journey of below again. So, uh, I am a Lake Mungo ticket all the way. Yeah. I have to say I'm somewhat eager to, pop an edible or whatever the case may be, watch, watch like Mungo and just have my mind blown because I know it has that, that potential. And I mean, I'm, I'm kind of looking forward to digging into this, this movie in a, in a really meaty way. So, um, I'm not sad at all. Obviously my vote going in was like Mungo. Nothing has changed tonight. So it, it is a clean sweep. Lake Mungo will advance. The number two seed is still alive. And that's our show. Any any final thoughts, Vic? My final thought would be that I am really surprised by how hard it is at this level to make the choices between these these films and how much I think these categories really put it into a broader perspective where you really do have to think about these movies in a way that we haven't thought about them before. We can all sit around in our living rooms and watch a movie and be like, well, fuck, that was scary. But there is more to the greatest horror film, the greatest haunted house film of all time than just me sitting alone in my living room. What is what? you know, one time, what does it mean? What is it like five times from now? What is it like when I'm watching it with my friends? What is it like after I read a bunch of reviews and then watch it again? Does it still have the same effect? Is it better? Is it worse? That's right. I feel like this, this round has given me some perspective on the films thus far. And I'm really curious and anxious to see what it does to the rest of the films that have survived this far. Yeah. I mean, yeah, this is definitely a bigger picture view 
and I think it's it's been illuminating. I, I think it's helped us make, if I dare say, the right choices in this round, even if we blew some of our earlier calls. No, I don't know. <laughs> I, I, I've been outvoted a couple of times, but, uh, you know, it's... I think our process works. Rich, what are your final thoughts? I'm super excited that we now have a two-episode commitment to spend the final four just blissed out on THC in order to expose the deeper truths of these films. Uh, I think it's a great approach. Well, we know Uh, that The Shining and Like Mungo are going to be there, and yeah, we should load up on the THC for these two movies. And also because either one of them, like, you know, especially with a, with an edible, like either one of those movies could really go either direction. It yeah. could either be a very good experience or a very bad one. Um, so I'm excited to see how that turns out. Um, you know, this has been a fun matchup. These are two movies that didn't have a whole lot going, um, you know, on the, on the surface uh, in terms of similarities. But I do think that they're, they're two movies that, that took very different, paths to the same place um which is kind of a you know a, a sort of cinematic purgatory you know one of them was a essentially a, a box office flop that that just that immediately got relegated from the theatrical release into obscurity whereas another one was a struggling indie uh foreign depending on where you're watching it from um you know film fest favorite that ultimately reached obscurity in your, in your, you know, video shelf, or as we made the transition on the streaming services, these are both movies that are sort of criminally underseen, um, that deserve a wider audience and both suffered from their fates for a reason that we feel was less than fair. So no matter who's moving on from this round, obviously it's like Mungo at this point, uh, it's cool that we got to spend some time shedding light, on a couple of movies that haven't had a whole lot of light shed on them. Well said. I mean, these are both movies that should have been more acknowledged than they are. And hopefully we've in the process of this whole tournament, given them credit they deserve. And for Lake Mungo, we're not done pimping that film because it's on to the ferocious four or the Frightful Four or the Fatal Four or whatever the hell we're calling it. But uh, we are calling this show done. I know that. So adios, everybody. Vic, Rich, say farewell to our listeners. Good night, listeners. Vic? (laughs) (laughs) Not even a goodbye from Vic. The, the big fuck you double middle fingers to the audience. <laughs> Adios, motherfuckers. <laughs> right. Sorry. Sorry. I, I, I was on mute. Uh, <clears throat> farewell to our listeners. That was worth waiting for, y'all. <laughs> Goddamn right it was. All right. See Good you. <laughs> <laughs> see you guys. Thanks for listening. Adios.